At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender, bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to Samuel chapter 12. Samuel chapter 12. We'll actually be overviewing chapter 11 as well. We won't be reading it, but we'll be overviewing it here in a moment. And as you turn there, um, I want to just ask you this question. Like, has there been a time in your life where you have royally messed up? Like, where you had, like, the wheels have come off, and, like, you're like, I don't know how I got here, but you feel like you're in the bottom of a pit. Where you look around, and all you see is a mess. All you see is pain. All you feel is shame. You, you experience disappointment. And you look around, you're like, how in the world did I get here? And, you know, the truth of the matter is, is we don't get to the bottom of the pit in our life overnight. Right? It's not like you wake up one morning and you're like, okay, today the wheels are coming off. No, the wheels come off slowly. Right? The wheels come off as the lug nuts holding our wheels together begin. We, we begin to unloosen them through things called compromise. Right? Compromise after compromise after compromise. And soon those wheels become wobbly and we don't slow down. Instead, sometimes we speed up because we're like, oh, that'll make it better. And more and more compromise. And then all of a sudden the wheels fall off and our lives go careening into the wall. And we're like, what in the world just happened? Have you been there before? It's not a fun place to be. But sometimes we get off track. Sometimes little compromises turn into little sin because of temptation. And then we get to the place where we royally mess up and we're full of guilt and we're full of shame. And we come to a place where we realize something needs to change. Or we either come to the place where we're like, okay, something needs to change now or I'm fully going into despair. Right, where there's no hope and that place of despair where the darkness comes in, like we don't like that. So before we get there, we're like, something has to change. Well, today we are beginning a new series entitled Confession, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal. We're strategically placing this sermon series as it butts up to Holy Week, as we move towards celebrating the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which is our hope in our faith. We are walking through the gift that God gives us and looking at the freedom that's found in Confession. We're going to, over the series, walk through Psalm 51. Uh, But before we get to Psalm 51, we see in Psalm 51, it's a prayer of confession from King David. So before we actually get to his prayer, we're going to walk through today and see how he gets to the place where he gets, that he needs to have this prayer of confession. 
So that it all begins back in Samuel chapter or 2 Samuel chapter 11. Where in chapter 11 we see the slow downward spiral of King David as he commits gross and seriously damning sin. The downfall begins if we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We see that it says there, in the time of year when kings go off to war, David stays home. Now that might not seem like a big deal to you, but David, this downward spiral, if you know the story of David, you know what's coming. But the downward spiral begins with a simple compromise. King David is supposed to be out at war with his army. It's the time of year when kings go off to war. David decides to stay home. That is the first mistake. If we trace, if we go back to the end of chapter 11, which we're going to be in a moment, and we trace every decision back, every action, every attitude back, it begins with this compromise. David is supposed to be at war, but he chooses to stay home. Now that he chooses to stay home, he has all of this free time. And so one night as he is having all of this free time, he's not at war, not concerned about his army, not concerned about them. He goes up to the top of his palace. And he's just looking around and all of a sudden he looks down and sees a woman bathing in the privacy of her own home. He sees her. Which there in and of itself is not a sin if he simply just turned away and, and said, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just saw that. And, and he goes back inside and, and does something else to take his mind away from that. But no, he compromises again because he allowed his mind to continue in on the thoughts. Thoughts of this woman. I want this woman. I need to be with this woman. And so what does he do? He calls for her. And so... Whoever one of his servants shows up at this woman's house and the, the servant says, the king requires your attendance. So she leaves her home. Her husband's off at war where he's supposed to be, doing what he's supposed to be doing. David calls Bathsheba to the palace, invites her in, and then uses his authority to take advantage of her. He forces himself upon her. He commits adultery with her. And then he sends her on her way, thinking to himself, no big deal. Nothing's going to happen. No one saw it. No one knows. No big deal. Nothing's going to come of it. But sometime later, after the sexual encounter, Bathsheba sends notice to David that she's pregnant. And instead of owning up to his action, David slips further into sin by trying to cover it up. He gets this great idea. Okay, what I'll do is I'll, I'll call to his, her husband, Uriah, who's fighting in the battles. I'll call for him to come home. He'll come home. They'll be together, and no one will be the wiser. And so that's what he does. He calls Uriah from the front lines, calls him home. And, David, and, and Uriah's supposed to go home, and, and David's checking. He's like, so did, did he go home? But no. Uriah, because he is an honest man, he is an honorable man, doesn't go home and say he sleeps at the gate. He refuses to give in. He's a man of character. So David now is getting a little bit crazy. He's like, okay, this is crazy. 
This guy's supposed to, what am I going to do? And so he starts the wheels to turn in again in his mind of how he's going to fix the situation. Instead of confessing, instead of coming clean, he's going to fix it. So what does he do? He tells the leader of his army as Uriah goes back to war, he says, go put him in the fiercest, where the fiercest fighting is, so he will surely die. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah goes to the front lines, this innocent man goes to the front lines, and he dies. And David thinks he gets away with it. David thinks it's all clean. He thinks, okay, no one's ever going to find out. My hands are clean with this. And then we see at the end of chapter 11, verse 27, it says, and when the morning was over, after Bathsheba goes through her season of mourning because her, hus- her innocent husband has died because David killed him, it says, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore a son. Oh, it even appears on the outside to the, the person watching from the sidelines that David is a virtuous man. Right To everyone else, he's a virtuous man because what has he just done? He's now taken in this widow and this orphan into his house, and he's just caring for them. And he thinks everything is clean. The story doesn't focus in on the pain and the horror and the shame that Bathsheba felt. We don't get to see her walking through the pain of this abuse. But she wasn't the only one that knew what had happened. God knew, and chapter 11 ends with this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God knew what David had done, and it displeased him. And so in chapter 12, we're going to see today, we see a divine confrontation about his sin. And what we're going to see today as we walk through chapter 12 is that the Lord confronts our sin so we can experience renewal, right? So that... Right? Confession is the hard thing that allows us to get to cleanliness, that allows us to be rejuvenated. And so many times, like this, that idea of confession is like a terrible thing for us. Somehow we want there to be some other way that we can become clean throughout, without confession. And today we're going to see why confession is needed. Confession is needed because it brings about healing. Right? What, what happens in a lot of our lives is that we, we do bad things that we don't want anyone to know about it. And so what do we do is we sweep it under the rug. Right? We keep sweeping it under the rug and we keep sweeping it under the rug. And it doesn't actually fix it. It doesn't fix it. It's still there. And what happens in our homes and in our lives, we have this rug with this big, big, big stumbling block that continues to build under it as we crush our sin underneath there. And it becomes a stumbling block to others. But in confrontation, what happens? Confrontation pulls back the rug and allows all the ugliness to come out so that it can be healed. Not hidden anymore. The whole purpose is so that it can be healed, so that our shame can go away, so that our pain and our guilt and all of that stuff that brings us down and makes us wish that we weren't even born can go away so that we can live life abundant. So that's why we need it. And today, we're going to see three reasons why God exposes our sin and confronts us with it. The first reason, 
that God confronts us with our sin is because we are blind to our own sin. Look with me in verses one through six. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And when he had brought it up, it grew up and with him and his children, and it used to eat of the morsels and drink from the cup that lined, and lined his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Then he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So we begin chapter 11 or chapter 12 knowing what has taken place in chapter 11 and we have to ask ourselves this question what's going to happen now Will God do anything about this great sin that is taking place And chapter 12 shows us that yes God does care God does see God does know and God uses Nathan to confront David of his sin But the way that he does it is not in a direct way. Instead, he comes in an indirect way. He comes to him as though presenting to him a legal case. As king of the nation, seeing this situation, David needs to give a judgment on it because that's part of his role. And so Nathan comes to him and presents to him this story of a rich man who has many, many flocks and a lot of herds. But then there's this poor man who has one simple lamb who cared for it and loved it and made it be a part of the family. So the rich man now has a guy that comes into town, a traveler comes into town, and the rich man wants to throw a big feast for this man. So instead of using the resources of his own household, he goes and takes from the poor man who only had one lamb, takes that lamb and then uses it to feed his friend or this traveler. And we see that when David listens to these words, it invokes an emotional response inside of him. David is very, very anger. And he makes an oath, as the Lord lives, the rich man deserves death. He's no pity on this rich man. But we can see because we know the story, the irony of the story. Right, Nathan is coming to David with a story that is really his story of what he has done to Uriah. How he has taken Uriah's precious, special gift in his wife and he has destroyed it. And he has even destroyed Uriah himself. David is blind to everything. David is like, okay, I got away with it. God must not be angry with me. There, I see no repercussions of this, so I'm going to continue to walk in sin. I'm going to continue to hide it. I'm going to continue to not deal with it. And now we see God is saying, no, it's time to deal with it. But David had blind spots. You know, over the course of the past few years, I've had the, the joy of teaching my daughters how to drive. I say joy because it has been joy. 
And one of the things that we walk through and talk about as I'm teaching them how to drive is helping them to understand each car that they drive has blind spots. Right? There are spots in the car. You can use the best mirrors and all of that, but still, every car has different blind spots that you have to become aware of. So when you get into a car, one of the things that you're supposed to do, if it's, especially if it's a car for the first time, is you're supposed to look and try to identify those blind spots so that when you're driving down the highway, you know to check those blind spots before you move out of lanes, right? Because we don't want to like run over someone or knock into someone. But just as cars have blind spots, you and I have blind spots. Have you ever noticed how much of your own body that you can't see by yourself? Think about that for a moment. Without the help of a mirror or the help of a photograph or something else, you can't ever see your face. You have no idea what your face looks like. Have you ever thought about that? Right? You, have, you have blind spots. You can't see like your head. You can't see your ears. You can't see the back of your head. You can't see the back of your neck. You can't even see your whole backside. You can't even see your tongue unless you have a really long tongue. Have you ever thought about that? Some of you are like sticking. No. <laughs> right? We have blind spots. God has created us with eyes to see, but we can't see fully. And so we need instruments in our lives. We need friends in our lives to tell us, hey, guess what? You've got some spinach in your teeth. Right? Just as we use a mirror to look at ourselves, we have God's word that is a mirror to our souls to show us our blind spots, to help us see how we're seen by our Heavenly Father. This becomes the measuring tool. This becomes the the visit to the doctor. This becomes the words of encouragement. This becomes the ultimate source of truth in our lives. And we need it because it gives us direction on how we are to go. And we need others. The, The Bible tells us, and the Christian life is never meant to live in isolation. It's always meant to live in relationships because you and I have blind spots. You and I can't see ourselves walking into sin because sometimes we live our lives even with blinders on where we get so focused that we can't see. And so we need others in our lives. But the problem becomes that we're greatly challenged in our day. We live in a world of cancel culture. Right, where you can't right now, like if, I, if I'm Nathan in your life and I come into your life and like, hey, the Lord has showed me I'm watching your life and like I see that you're sinning and I come to confront, you can't even confront anyone anymore. Right, because immediately, as soon as someone comes to us and, and, and tries to point out something, to, we become defensive, we throw up a wall and we're like, who are you to judge me? You know what you've done, and then you start defending yourself. So that's what happens in our culture today. And this, what we're talking about, is we need to be deeply challenged by this. Because the way in which we're responding, the way in which our culture is telling us to live, is in direct violation of what God calls us to do. But you know yourself. You know it yourself. 
When you see someone in their, your life, someone that you love going down the dark path or going on a path that they shouldn't, it's so hard for you to step in. It like causes you to keep have sleepless nights because you're like, I can't confront them. I can't say anything because as soon as I say something, they're going to turn it around on me. They're going to despise me. They're going to hate me. And then I'm going to lose the relationship. You guys feel that way? We're not supposed to. We're not supposed to. According to the Bible, we all have blind spots, so I need you and you need me and we need each other. And yes, it hurts. It hurts to be confronted. Yes, it's going to hurt and it's going to be painful, but it's what we need to do if we care for the souls of our brothers and sisters. To allow our brother or sister to walk in sin and shame and not step in is not loving. Why would, like if you, you as a parent, you see your kids doing it all the time, you're immediately stepping. You're like, hey, don't go that way. Hey, hey, don't, don't put your finger in the light socket because it's gonna hurt you. Don't touch, don't touch the hot stove, right? We're, we do that naturally as parents with our kids, but we don't do it with our friends. And we love our kids. We should love our friends. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you really have a Nathan in your life? Is there someone that you've given access to to say, hey, I don't need you to sugarcoat it. I just need you to tell me like it is. And yes, it's gonna hurt, but I'm, I'm, we're gonna walk in this together. For when, Nathan, when your Nathan comes to you, they may not even come to you in the right way. But when your Nathan comes to you, listen. And then take it back to the Lord and say, Lord, hey, like I, they, they see this. I don't see this. God, give me eyes to see because I don't want to go down the path. I don't want to be in the bottom of the pit. I'm tired of being in the bottom of the pit. I'm tired of having my life so riddled up with shame and guilt that it almost paralyzes me. God, I don't want to be there again, so help me to hear. If you don't have a Nathan in your life, get a Nathan in your life. Be vulnerable enough to say, hey, I need you. Just tell me how it is. Because it's easy for us to have blind spots. It's easy for us to be blind to our pride. It's easy for us to be blind to our anger, to our covetousness, to our idolatry. And yeah, it's risky business to enter into confrontation. It's risky. But all relationships are risky. And the more the relationship is important to us, the more the relationship means to us, the more we're willing to risk. And if we're not really willing to risk, then it doesn't must, must not mean that much to us. Proverbs 27, verse six, encourages us with these words. He says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We need friends in our lives that will confront us of our sins, especially in the areas that we're blind to it. Second, we need confrontation in our life because we have despised the word of God. Look with me in verse seven of chapter 12. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite, 
with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do these things before all Israel, before the sun. Here's the moment of truth. Nathan responds to David's anger and his pursuit of justice against the rich man by telling him that he is this man. In an instant, the rug gets ripped away. And David, who is angry for justice, right? We always want everyone else to get justice, but we want grace. Right? He knows that this fictitious person did wrong, and David wants to call him to the carpet. And now David's being called to the carpet. And all that David did, the failure of his lust, the covetousness, his envy, his anger, really wasn't what got to God's heart. What got to God's heart was that he despised the words of the Lord. He took what was of greatest value, the word of the Lord. In the word of the Lord, we have the guidelines or the, or the guardrails of our life for a full and meaningful life. The word of God is not oppressive. Some people look at the word of God and they're like, the word of God tells me all the things that I can't do and that I shouldn't do and that I, that I can't do. Like it's so, so restrictive. But that's not the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord says, if you want to have life and have it abundantly, then live within this lane. Right? The guardrails are here to protect you. Because as you're navigating the dangers of life, on the other side of these guardrails is sheer danger. It might be a terrible cliff or, or there might be a, a, a lake or something else. The guardrails of life are there for our protection. But David despised the word of the Lord. He despised it. The Lord was like, David, I, look at all that I've already given you. Everything. I've given you everything. What more could you possibly want? And David steps in and in his heart, according to the word of God, remember, believes one of those two lies that Satan deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, deceives you and I every single day. These two lies that what God has given me is not good and it's not enough. Right? David had everything. Everything that David had was good, but somehow it wasn't enough. And in doing so, he despises the word of God in his heart. He chooses to violate the law of God. He knew the Big Ten, right? He knows, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not have any other gods before me. Like, as David is walking through this, he knows what God de declares and what God has decided to be true. And David says, I will not. The tragedy of the scene then unfolds as David's life was given over to violence and to the sword and to dismantling a family. 
God says, I've had enough. God says, you are guilty. See, God's justice is not like David's justice. God's justice is perfect and it's pure. But the truth of this is it teaches us a very valuable lesson is that even in our own lives, we despise the things in our lives that are of the greatest value. Why do we do that? Right, the things that are of great, instead of valuing and treasuring the things that are really of utmost importance in our lives, we despise it. This is why God confronts us. Because at times, our minds and our priorities can get all out of whack. And so we need, like, a reset. We need a reset for our souls. And confrontation is just that. It's a, hey, you're going the wrong way. Turn a different way. And yet, we disregard God's words. We disregard God's words in our lives when we ignore his word, when we reject his word. We say that it's not worthy, that his word is not worthy when we don't allow it to to instruct us, when we refuse, when we allow everything else in the world to, to inform us and to tell us how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to love, how we're supposed to walk. No, instead we look at God's word and we despise it when we diminish its rightful place in our lives. This morning, how how are you living in relation to God's word? What place does God's word have in your life? Is it the ultimate authority? Or is it something that you have in your home, but we have multiple copies of it, but you no longer are allowing it to inform your life. It just kind of sits there. You're like, okay, I'm going to live however I want to live. I'm going to walk however I want to walk. I, I know a couple biblical principles enough to get me by, so I'm good there. And when we do that, we despise God's word. We say that it's not worthy, that it's not helpful, that it doesn't give instruction. Maybe, maybe just what you need to do, maybe what God is calling you to do is, once again, put God's word at the center of your life. Take it off the shelf and bring it back into the center of your life. Bring it back into the center of your marriage. Bring it back into the center of your parenting. Bring it back into the center of the way that you live with your finances and at work. And Bring it back into the center. Make it the foundation from which you allow everything to grow. Not your past experience. Not the wisdom that you've already gotten. But the wisdom and the words of the Lord. The third reason that we see that God confronts us of our sin is because the Lord will forgive our sin. The Lord will forgive our sin. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. David deserved death. According to the law, David was super, super, super guilty on multiple accounts. David deserved a quick and swift execution. But in a moment of clarity, when his, he's confronted with his sin, we don't see him trying to, uh, to, to push Nathan away. We see full ownership of his sin. 
He takes responsibility for his actions. He doesn't begin to make excuses. Well, if Bathsheba wouldn't have been up to having a bath, wouldn't have been there. Right? If, if Uriah would have just done what Uriah is supposed to do, then we wouldn't be here. No, he takes responsibility. This is something we see people not wanting to do today in our world. No one wants to take responsibility for their own actions. Everyone else wants to say it was someone else's fault. The devil made me do it. Right? You don't know the situation, the circumstances I'm walking in. I don't care. Right? The Lord doesn't care. I mean, he cares. But he knows that we're supposed to walk in holiness. And at the end of the day, we are responsible for our own actions. We are responsible. No one else. And David does and shows us. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. An amazing confession, but also a willingness to endure whatever judgment's going to come because he knows he did wrong. And God, who is a God of love, comes to, to, to David through Nathan, and the Lord says that he has put away your sin. You will not die. This term translated to put away regarding to David's sin is, is a rich biblical term. It, it literally means that God is passing over his sin. Right? They, that God is covering his sin. It's reminiscent of when God is freeing his people from the slavery in Israel. Remember that night of the Passover that the blood of the lamb was supposed to be spread over the door so when the angel of death comes, those in the house would be saved. Right, This passing over. But what, day, what God is not doing here, God is not usurping his justice. He's not just turning a blind eye to the sin. He's passing it over, or another way of saying is he's pushing it forward for David. For us, it pushes back. Because his sin must be punished. God cannot be a just God if he doesn't punish all sin. All sin has to be punished. And so this idea of passing it over is paying it forward or, or looking forward to the ultimate blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. For Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the only one who came to die the death that we deserve. The penalty of David's sin was still served in Jesus Christ. So David had to look forward. We look back knowing that God is a God of love. God is a God of forgiveness. God is a God of steadfast love that is full of mercy. So on the basis of what Christ has done, you and I can experience forgiveness. You and I can experience forgiveness because Jesus went to a cross and Jesus died. And when he died, the sin of the world was placed on him. He endured the wrath of God. He died on a cross and then was raised again. That anyone believes in Jesus, places their faith and trust in Jesus, we may be forgiven. So the Lord has passed over your sin. He's passed over it in the life of Christ. I love the word of the Lord that comes to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. This is the Lord, 
The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeps keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Oh, the depths of God's forgiveness is great. He is gracious, he is merciful, and he is kind. And he is the only one that can give us a pardon for our sin. If you're here today, I encourage you, if you've never come to the place of trusting in Jesus for salvation, that that be what you do today. If you are in the bottom of the pit, that you got there by yourself because of your own self, and you've been trying and clawing your way out of that pit, and you've been unable to get yourself out, I encourage you to turn to Jesus today. Lift up your hands. Say, I'm no longer striving. I'm no longer trying. Jesus, just save me. And he'll scoop down the bottom of that pit, and he's going to pull you out, and he's going to set you on solid ground. That, if you've experienced that in your life, you know. You know the gift that that is. And you know that you will always and forever be changed because not what you've done, but what's been done for you. Or maybe you're here today and you've been making some compromises in your life. Maybe you're not quite at the pit yet, but you're on your way. Maybe you've been blinded to some things and you just need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, search me, know me, see me. And allow me to see myself for who I really am and begin that cleansing process. The Bible gives us a clear teaching that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, over the next few weeks, you're going to come here and it's going to be hard. This is not a fun sermon to preach because of the pain that it brings about. But we preach it because in it there is hope. And the hope is healing. Right? If we're honest with ourselves, each one of us are in desperate need of a Savior. Each one of us live lives of sin. As you've heard me say, each one of us are dirty, rotten sinners. Right? We're in our pride and in our arrogance and in everything that we do. We need confession. We need to confess before the Lord the things that we have done and the ways in which we have displeased him, knowing that he is gracious. And as long as we have breath in our lungs and our heart is still beating, there's still a chance for us to turn to him. Would we be that generation that continually turns to him? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words of truth today. Father, thank you for helping us to see today the depths of our evil hearts. Father, there's so much potential for evil in each one of us. And we thank you, God, that you restrain us with your word or else we'd have no hope. But Father, we also thank you today for the extravagant gift of your grace. Not because we deserve it, but because of your loving kindness. Father, we thank you that you keep in complete, perfect tension justice and mercy. That they're perfect in you. 
And they're both all completely perfected in the person of Christ. That on that cross, both mercy and grace and justice were perfected. Father, may our eyes always look to you in our shame. Father, would we not run from you, but would you teach us to run to you? And just with open arms, say, say, Abba, Father, I messed up again. 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 And every time we mess up, may we hear your words say, it is forgiven. It is forgiven. It is forgiven. It is forgiven. Father, in these moments now, help us to respond. If we need to come running to the altar, laying ourselves before you, may you do that in us. May you move us to that. Or maybe we just need to make an altar in the chair that's before us as we bow our heads and say, Lord, forgive me. But Father, help us not to be too arrogant that we would think we don't need to confess something. But Father, as we sing, would you continue to move in our hearts and in our lives? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.